uh, should be page 417 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will praise Thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all Thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in Thee. I will sing praise to Thy name, O Thou Most High. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at Thy presence. For Thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne, judging aright. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O Thou enemy, destruction are come and to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me, that thou liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I'll rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down to the pit which they have made. The net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. The title of the message is Encouraging Worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. Again, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we need you to fill us tonight to help us to lay aside the cares of life we may have brought in. And this time, be focused on what you have for us from your word. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come and for him to open our hearts and our minds up to receive your word. Let what we take tonight to strengthen us and encourage us and Make us better able to go out into the world and be lights that shine for you. Help us to be confident in you, to trust in you. Lord, To when we have the opportunities to tell people about the goodness and the greatness and the trustworthiness of our God. Fill me tonight with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. And this is one of the many psalms where we have no idea about the context. We don't know what was going on in David's life when he wrote it. If you look at Psalm 9 and 10, you see they're very similar. Uh, in fact, they are so closely related, many commentators believe they originally were one psalm that at some point in the editing process were broken up. It's also possible that what happened was David wrote Psalm 9 and then David wrote Psalm 10 almost immediately following it. This, to me, seems to be the one that makes the most sense because... While the Psalms are similar, they deal with strife and conflict and trusting in God in these times. They seem to address different types of conflict. In Psalm 9, David is talking about strife that comes from without. He talks about God judging the nations. Um, he's not talking about God defending him against the Jewish people, but against the, the heathen, the pagans, those who aren't Jews. In Psalm 10, 
most of the attacks David talked about seem to come from the Jews themselves. So it's David writes, in one hand, David writes about God protecting and defending him when enemies outside of Israel attack. And then in Psalm 10, David writes about God protecting and defending him when the enemy within Israel would attack him. The emphasis of this psalm is praise for God. But it's not just general praise, God is good and God is great. Rather, this praise is motivated by God's care for His people and His righteous judgment of the wicked. The psalm is meant to encourage the one who is singing it or who is studying it. Uh, In the psalm, David acknowledges the reality of enemies and opposition. They come from all kinds of places. They bring all kinds of troubles. However, these enemies... And the opposition did not cause David to despair or lose heart. He is able to look past the enemies, past the opposition, and see God. What God is doing right now and what God will do in the future. David is able to look beyond the enemies, to look to God and remain joyful in in the face of the oppression, in the face of his opposition. Uh, Because he knows the greatness, the goodness, the power And ultimately the justice, the righteous judgment his God will bring upon the world. This recognition of God being the just judge over all of the earth led David to worship despite the opposition of his enemies. Now it seems this psalm is meant to be a place we can go to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. In in any time, but especially in times we may be struggling. Um, not, Not so much struggling because life is necessarily generally hard. You know, there are times where you see the the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And in those times, it can be very discouraging. It can be very frustrating. What do we do? How do we deal with this? This psalm is for that time. It is especially for the time when the wicked are prospering and they are attacking the righteous and the righteous are suffering because of this. In those times, we are meant to, to run to this psalm and let that psalm push us to God. Now, and that's a key that it pushes us to God, because while David does speak of his enemies in this psalm, they are not really the focus. God is. Ultimately, David is talking to God and about God throughout the psalm. Every verse in this psalm, in one way or another, focuses on God. Um, And this focus on God is what brings David the encouragement. It's what allows his heart to rejoice. It's what causes him to praise God. And really the idea that we see in this psalm is that worship encourages us by focusing our attention on God instead of on our circumstances. And that's a big thing. When we worship God, we're focused on God, and we are more focused on God than we are on our circumstances. And as we look at what David tells us in this psalm about God, there are four areas, uh, I guess four areas of God, four ways to focus on God. In order to be encouraged in our times where we may be stressing over the the flourishing of the wicked, the suffering of the righteous. First, let's focus on God's greatness. It says in verse 1 and 2, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. David starts by expressing wholehearted praise. Unto God. Now, the language of doing something wholeheartedly or with our whole heart is very familiar throughout God's Word. We're repeatedly told to serve, worship, praise God with our whole hearts. And the, the idea of our whole heart is kind of multifaceted. On, on the one hand, it stresses sincerity. 
Right. If I am worshiping God with my whole heart, I I am really involved. I am sincere. I'm not going through the motions. It's not like the people in Isaiah's day who worship God with their mouths, but their heart is far from him. It is sincerely worshiping God, sincerely serving God, being sincere in it. But it's also singleness of heart. Right. That, That this is my my whole focus. The Bible often talks about we need God to unite our hearts. Because I don't know about you, but my heart gets fragmented at times. It's gone here, there, and everywhere, and all kinds of things. And, and there is a need to to worship God to just to let that be all that's going on in that moment. To lay aside the cares of life, the stresses of the news, and whatever else is going on. And in that moment, just focus on God. Let my worship of Him be pure and and passionate and and fully focused on who He is. And what he has done. And a part of this kind of worship is showing forth all of his marvelous works. And there's a neat kind of a the way it leads. He will praise God with his whole heart. He will show forth all God's marvelous works. And then he will be glad and rejoice in him. Now, the way it looks to me is David's being glad and rejoicing in God flows forth from showing forth all of God's marvelous works. But David would take the time to think about the marvelous works God had done. To me, this doesn't look like a general God is good and God is great and he's wonderful, but it's very specific. Here's some marvelous works God has done for me. And as David began to to think about, to meditate on, to proclaim the good things God had done for him, it led him to be glad and to rejoice in spite of the opposition and the enemies he's facing. Right. When we. When we go through these times and we are struggling at the circumstances of life, a, a very good thing for us to do is to set aside some time and begin to, to show forth God's marvelous works in our lives. Right now, we don't necessarily have to go and tell others, although that's not a bad idea. But what difference, what kind of difference would it make in our life if in this moment when we feel stressed, We feel kind of overwhelmed at the circumstances going on. If we turned off everything else and we got out a a notepad and we began to just write down, here are some good things God has done for me. Here are the marvelous works of God I myself have experienced. Right? Not, Not stuff I've heard about. Not something somebody else told me about. But God answered this prayer. God encouraged me in this way. God gave me this blessing. God has done this for me. I mean, what if we took in those times when we're stressed and overwhelmed and anxious, if we took half an hour and just wrote them down? And, of course, the Bible doesn't say you have to do it this way, so you don't have to do it this way. But I do think there's something about more writing it down than just replaying it in our mind. There's something more tangible about taking the time to say, God did this. God did that than just rehearsing it in our mind. That sort of focus, that sort of effort of putting forth to declare God's marvelous works for us is something I have found to be very encouraging. It is something in those times when I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I'm stressed. If I will turn off everything, maybe worship music on, but maybe turn off everything. And just get out a notepad and begin to rehearse and recite the marvelous works of God which have been done for me. 
I have found to be terribly encouraging. Something that causes my heart to be glad and causes me to rejoice, eases my anxieties, relieves my stress. That doesn't change my current circumstances, but what it does is it reminds me of God's greatness. Right? It takes the focus off of what's going on in my life at this particular moment that has got me stressed or anxious, and it puts it on the greatness of God who has never failed me, has always come through for me, and has always done for me. Something else along these lines we can do to focus on God's greatness is to, to sing a song. Right? He talks about, I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. I mean, they're, they're, the reason we sing in church I mean, that's not just like you sing and then you preach. That's what the church does. There, there, it is meant to focus us on the greatness of God. There, that's a part of why we do what we do. Part of the, the singing portion of the service is to get our minds on God. Get our minds off of what's going on out there. Focused on God so that we are more prepared to receive His Word. Well, what, what it does for us in here, it can do for us on any other day of the week as well. I mean, there are times when, when I, again, when I feel stressed, and so what I do is I, I sing a song. Now, I'm, I'm alone when I do it because nobody else needs to hear that noise, but I like to, to come in here, sometimes if I'm at church, get out a hymnal, and, and some of the songs I sing are just uh, the chorus, I love you, Lord, or I'd rather have Jesus, or the song Majesty, or How Great is Our God, just, but something that's not about the world. And the troubles and the circumstances and something that just reminds me of God, who he is and what he's like. And this is, again, something which it doesn't change my circumstances. I don't come in here and sing these songs and then I go back and everything's fixed. Instead, it has united my heart. It has kind of taken away some of the fragmentation and allows me to be focused on the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the worthiness of God and not my circumstances. And it eases that anxiety or it eases that fear or it encourages in a time of discouragement. So worship encourages us because it uh, because it causes us to focus on God's greatness and not our circumstances. Secondly, Focus on God's justice. Now what we see in verses 3 through 8 seems to be a major part of the reason for David's praise and the reason he was encouraged and joyful despite the opposition he was facing. So look at what it says. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. David recognizes the presence of the Lord in his life. But not just in a general sense, but the presence of the Lord in his life to protect him and to be there for him. Right. His enemies. It's all it's a picture of his enemies pursuing him. Then they recognize the Lord is with David. Then they stop short. They turn to run away. But the almost like the glory of God, the justice of God falls upon them and they perish in the presence of the Lord, God brings judgment upon them. David goes on in verse 4 and has God, sees God sitting on his throne. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sits in the throne judging a right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Uh, just over and over in these verses, what David is going to do is talk about God 
judging, right? You have you sat in the throne of judgment, judging right. You have maintained my right. Now, what David says is he really he has seen it and he fully expects to see more of God bringing judgment upon these who are coming against him. That God will judge righteously, but he will judge righteously in David's favor. And this will bring the others into the, the wrath of God. Now, there is something about this I was thinking. There, there's certainly encouraging, comforting to think of God judging in our favor. But something to understand along these lines is the reason God was judging in David's favor. But God wasn't judging in David's favor because David was David. It was not, well, David is such a swell guy, I'll choose him over the other guys. No, David was righteously devoted to God. David was doing what was right and just and according to the word of God. Therefore, God judged in his favor and not theirs. So if we want to think of God judging in our favor, we have to remember the New Testament tells us God judges righteously and without partiality. So God's not going to judge in our favor because he thinks we're such swell people. He's going to judge in our favor because we're doing what is right. We're doing what is just. We are doing according to his word. And and then and only then can we be sure God will judge in our favor. Verse five and six, David describes God's judgment on his enemies. God has rebuked the heathen. He has destroyed the wicked. He has put out their name forever and ever. He tells them an enemy that destruction had come to a perpetual end. God had destroyed their cities. Their memorial is perished with them. God had brought such judgment upon David's enemies that they were basically put out of history. The memory of them had faded from existence. And then David contrasts what God did with the wicked with God himself. But the Lord, in verse 7, shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. God would judge the enemies of, of David, the, these nations, to such an extent they would be obliterated. So even the memory of them have wiped off the face of the earth. But God himself would endure forever. God is the righteous judge, the sovereign ruler over all of the universe. And so while nations rise and nations fall... The Lord endures forever. There, there is there is a great deal of encouragement in knowing that. Right? Nations throughout history. I mean, just think about what we know from our Bible, from our Old Testament. How many nations from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi, how many nations rise and how many nations fall while God continues? Or in the New Testament, how many nations rise and how many nations fall while God continues? Or, or even in our history. Think about what we know of world history. How many nations since the time of the Roman Empire have risen to prominence and power and have fallen from existence and now God still stands forever? Man, that's, that is good news to know that we are with the God who is eternal and everlasting. And nations will rise and nations will fall. And the memory of them may well be wiped off the face of the earth. But our God stands forever. How much should we focus on Him and not on these other things? We see in the last of verse 7 and 8. God's rule is demonstrated through His judgment on the earth. He has prepared His throne for judgment. 
He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Right? So the picture, God has prepared the throne. He brings judgment. It will be a righteous judgment. It will be to the people. And it will be an upright, a fair judgment. The one people have really earned for themselves. Now there is something awesome and and terrifying about the thought of God's throne being prepared for judgment. It, it sets my mind to Revelation 21, 11 through 15, about the great white throne of judgment. Of course, it, we're a long ways from there in our study in Revelation, but we'll get there. But most of us have read that passage. We know. I mean, that, that in, in so many ways, that's a terrifying passage. Right? Because th- th- this is an interesting contrast we find in Scripture. In, in Hebrews 4, we have the throne of grace. Invited to come and find mercy and grace to help us in a time of need. But in Revelation 21, there's a throne of of judgment. And in the throne of judgment, there there is none of that mercy and grace to help in a time of need. On on that day, when when that day comes and the, the throne and people stand before it, there is just the pure justice of God. Right? There's no mercy. There's no grace. There's there's nothing but here's what you have done. Here's what the Bible said was right and what the Bible said was wrong. Here's the Lamb's book of life and your name is not in there. Depart from me. I never knew you. That is a terrifying, in so many ways, a terrifying picture. That is the day which is coming. And and in so many ways, I think what we need to motivate ourselves, and this isn't necessarily a part, this is kind of a rabbit trail. But as disciples of Jesus in this day, we need to encourage people to seek the throne of God now and find mercy and grace to help them in that time of need. Because if they wait until God brings the throne to them, well, there is no just, there is no mercy, there is no grace, there is just the sheer judgment and justice of God. And the way Revelation 21 describes it, there won't be anyone on that day saying, oh, this is not fair, I don't deserve this. The way God will bring judgment about, everyone there will be weighed down by their own sin. They will know the wages of sin is death, and all, including them, have sinned and earned that wage. Now, it can seem odd for us to say, We encourage ourselves by focusing on God's judgment. However, that that is what David does here. David knows while the enemies of God may rage now, they are on a slippery slope and will eventually be cast down into judgment. They may exalt themselves now, but there will come a time when they are brought low in desolation. They may be fearless in their sin now, but there will come a day when they understand the terror of the Lord's judgment. Focusing on God's judgment helps us to see that while things here are not right, things here are in fact often very, very bad and unjust and wicked. What we see now is not the end. God will work it out. There is a day of judgment. Now, I think there's some balance we need to have. Right? When we think about being encouraged by the fact that God is bringing justice. 
we have to be careful and be sure that what we're saying they deserve judgment or God will bring justice is something that is truly worthy of God's justice. Right? If, if somebody cuts us off at the Walmart parking lot and, and we kind of feel a little bit gleeful thinking, well, they're going to go to hell for that, something's probably wrong in our hearts. Right? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the big sort of moral wickedness we see in the culture. Right? We see abortion, and we know while it's wrong and wicked now, there, there is a day of judgment coming. And, and those who do such things will face the righteous judgment of God. We see much wickedness exalted in our culture, but there is a day of judgment coming in which God will bring those who do such things into judgment. We look and we see God mocked and blasphemed and belittled. On the TV by the talking heads. And that can be discouraging and depressing. But while they may rage now. While they may mock now. This day is coming in which they will stand before the righteous judge. And they will give an account for their lives. And there is within that a knowing. It seems the wicked prosper now. But now is not the end. The wicked who prosper now. Refuse to repent and believe upon Jesus. They will face the righteous and the pure judgment of God. They will be held accountable. They may escape punishment in this life. But they will not escape punishment in the next. So we encourage, worship encourages us when we see injustice abounding because we know God's justice will prevail in the end. So focus on God's greatness, focus on God's justice, focus on God's protection. In verses 9 through 14, David shifts gears and goes about talking about what God will be like. uh, From what God will be like with the wicked in the previous verses to what God is like with the righteous in in verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, it says the Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed and a refuge in trouble. Refuge in oppression and a refuge in trouble. Now, I love this explanation, this picture, because there's no real, there's not a lot of explanation given. There's just in oppression, God is a refuge and in trouble, God is a refuge. The reason I think that is so great is because there's all kinds of oppression we face in in this world. There is man-made oppression and there is satanic oppression. But God is our refuge for both. There is uh, all kinds of trouble. There's there's trouble that just happened from living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. There's trouble the enemy can bring. There's trouble our bad decisions can bring. There's, There's trouble which comes into our life because of the decisions of others. And yet God is is our refuge in all of these times. No matter what is causing our, our oppression, what is causing our trouble, God is our refuge. Psalm 46 says, a very present help in a time of trouble. Now, one of the ways, of course, we find this refuge is by accepting his invitation to to cast all of our cares upon him. To pray and and lay it all out. God, this is how I feel. This is what's going on. He goes on in verse 10 and says, They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. Now, the word know there is is not a casual 
meaning. It's not like an intellectual knowledge, like I've heard God's name and I remember the phrase. The Hebrew word used is the word yada, which is the same word used when the Bible says, when God's word says Adam knew his wife Eve. Right? This is talking about an experiential familiarity with the character of God as revealed in his names. So like we talked about last week, those who know Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider, those who know God in that way, well, they will trust in God, those who have experienced God being who he says he is, they will trust in him. They, they cannot help it. I mean, when you've experienced God's goodness and God's greatness and God's majesty in those ways, the only natural response is to continually trust in him, to seek him for help, to seek him as a refuge. And then it says, the Lord has not nor will forsake them that seek him. Oh, now this Again, that, that's a what a great statement. So we know who God is. We know what God is like. And so we seek Him. We trust Him. And no one who has ever placed their trust in God, no one who has ever sought the Lord, has been forsaken by the Lord. No one who knows God and trusts God and seeks God to make Him their refuge will ever be forsaken by God. What a... What a great promise to cling to in times that are difficult. And and knowing this leads David to sing praises unto the Lord and worship Him in verse 11. He will sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion and declare among the people His doings. So David will praise God and he will declare what God has done among the people. Now, Declaring among the people God's doings is less about singing songs of testimony and more about giving actual verbal testimony, telling people, here's what God has done for me. So with this part of the verse, think along the lines of the, the man of the gatherings. Now remember the story, Jesus comes to the land and the man is possessed by legions of demons. Jesus casts the demons out of the man. And when Jesus goes to leave, the man says, I, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. No, you go and you tell your friends and your family what great things the Lord has done for you. And so he goes among the ten cities and he begins to just tell people. He doesn't he doesn't argue theology. He doesn't try to do all of these things with arguing with the Pharisees and the finer points of the law. He just tells them what good things the Lord has done for him. And when Jesus comes back, he finds a load of people welcoming and waiting to see Him again because they have heard about His greatness and His goodness from the man of the gatherings. This sort of testifying should be somewhat natural for those of us who again know the name of the Lord, have found Him a place of refuge in the times of trouble. It shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't be difficult. We should just sort of naturally... Tell people about what good things God has done for us. Now, of course, we do this in every other thing in life, don't we? I mean, if we eat at a good restaurant, we tell people. If we read a good book, we we tell people. If we watch a good movie, we, we tell people. 
then why wouldn't it be natural if we have experienced a good God that we would tell people, God has been so good to me. This isn't arguing theology. This isn't trying to counteract all the things people might say. This is just saying, well, I know, kind of like the the man who was healed who was born blind. I don't know all that stuff you're saying, but this one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. I don't have all the answers for what you're saying, but I'm just telling you, in my time of need, in my time of trouble, in my time of oppression, God was a fortress and a refuge for me. Now, what we see in verse 12 is interesting. When he maketh inquisition for the blood. Um, In the culture of this time, it was common for a member of a murdered person's family to seek revenge on the murderer. It's called the avenger of the blood. And his only purpose, once he was named the avenger of the blood, was to kill the person who killed their family member. Right. So if I killed Joe, then the Watsons would get together and they would select Scott. And Scott's job then would be to come and, and murder me to avenge what had happened to his dad. That's the way the culture worked. It was understood that this was going to happen. The picture here is of the righteous being killed and God being the one who avenges the blood of his people. Right when, when the righteous are killed by the wicked, it is God who then becomes the avenger of the blood. He is the one who will seek justice on our behalf. As such, He won't forget us. He won't forget justice. The humblest cry from the feeblest saint will be heard by God and He will respond and bring justice. And this is, to me, reminiscent of of Revelation 6, 9-11 through where the martyrs cry out, and they ask God, how, how much longer before God will avenge their blood on those who kill them? And they're given white robes and they're told it will be just a little bit longer. But a part of the idea of it will be a little bit longer is it will come, right? There, there will be a day when those who murdered the martyrs will face the judgment of God. God has not forgotten them. God has not abandoned them. God did not turn his eyes away and not see what had happened to them. He saw, he cared, and one day he would act on their behalf. And of course, the end of Revelation, the great white throne is a part of when all of this happens. And then in verse 13, David cries for God to have mercy upon him. Consider his trouble, which he was suffering of them that hate him. And for God to lift him up from the gates of death. This is a, a plea for mercy. Right? He, David, again, because of time, and we've covered this before in other Psalms, and we see it often in the Psalms, I won't get much into it. But David doesn't say, look at what I've done, God, how much I've earned. David says, God, be merciful to me. Right? I, I'm not plea, I'm not saying, give me what I deserve. I'm saying, be merciful. Show mercy. It is a, a plea based off of the mercy of God. Verse 14 says that I may show forth all the, thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. But, so David wants God to spare him, to lift him up from the gates of death. So that he will praise God. He will give glory to God. David, if God delivers him, David is not going to take credit. David is not going to say, look at what I've done. He is going to say, look at what the Lord 
has done for me. So worship encourages us because it encourages us to focus on the many times, the many ways God has protected us in the past. One of the things about God's protection I think about is probably we could all look at times where God had protected us. We look and we think, wow, there was just God did this and I was spared from that. But I wonder, and I've often wondered if when we get to heaven, we're going to find out the many ways that we, we didn't see. I mean, have you ever thought about that? How many times has God protected you from harm, from the enemy? And, and it happened in such a way we we never felt a disturbance. We, we never recognized. I mean, not a close call, but we, we didn't even see anything. And yet there was something God did that saved us from, from tragedy, from death, from, from some sort of horror that the world or the enemy was trying to inflict upon us. I wonder if when we get to heaven, God will reveal to us all of the times He has done this. But, but going on the times we know about, the times we have experienced God's protection, it's an encouragement, right? God has done it in the past. Why wouldn't He do it in the future? Right? I mean, we at times get to worry about Lizzie, right? What, what's Lizzie's future? What, what's going to happen? What, so many uncertainties about her, her illness. There's so many uncertainties about her in general. But we look at her life. And there have been so many times God has, has never failed Lizzie. He has, he has never let her let these things happen to her that we might have feared would happen. So we don't know what the future holds, but we have 13 years of a faithful God protecting and providing for her to say, I don't see why the future would be any different. So that's what focusing on God's protection does. It allows us to say what He did in the past, He will do in the future. And then finally, focus on God's sovereignty. Verse 15 and 16 is, is interesting. The heathen are sunk down the pit they have made. The net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked are snared in the work of his own hands. Now, in wisdom literature, we often find a, a theme of the wicked set a trap for the righteous and then the wicked fall into it themselves. Right? They, they dig a pit for the righteous person to fall into, but something happens and they fall into that pit themselves. And, and in most wisdom literature, like in Proverbs, it's just a you reap what you sow kind of thing. Right? That you, you set enough traps for people, eventually you fall into your own trap. But here, it's different. This isn't you reap what you sow. This is God did it. The sovereignty of God has caused the wicked to fall into their own trap. The sovereignty of God has forced them to be snared by the work of their own hands. The destruction of the, the wicked through their own wickedness it tells us something about the character and the nature of God. He is holy and He is righteous. And He... Judges and he hates sin and the wicked will not always get by with their wickedness. Now verse 17 and 18 is, is a contrast between the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of the righteous. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget not God. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. The wicked may flourish now and they may prosper now and they may be powerful now. But there is a day of reckoning where all of this changes. Now, something that I want to focus on, because I think it's so powerful. It's not just the wicked, 
but those who forget God. Now, this doesn't merely mean they forgot God existed. It means they don't consider or regard God, his commandments, his promises or his threatenings. Where the wicked actively oppose God and go against God, the, the, the forgetful just take no thought to God whatsoever. It is like in verse 10 and 4 where it says God is not at all in their thoughts. Now, again, this is a powerful thing to get. There are the wicked who have opposed God and, and they have done what God has said not to do and they refuse to do what God has said not to uh, they refuse to do what God has said to do. Then there are the forgetful who just take no thought to God at all. And listen to what Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on Psalm 9 says about this. The moral. Here's what how he describes the forgetful. They're moral who are not devout. The honest who are not prayerful. The benevolent who are not believing. The amiable who are not converted. These must all have their own portion. With the openly wicked in the hell which is prepared for the devil and his angels. He goes on to say, there are a whole, there are whole nations of such. The forgetters of God are far more numerous than the profane. And according to the very forceful expression of the Hebrew, the nethermost hell will be the place unto which all of them shall be hurled headlong. Forgetfulness seems but a small sin, but it brings eternal wrath upon the man who lives and dies in it. I don't have time to get much into that, but boy, is that not a frightful commentary on so many we know. So many. How many of us know many people who are moral but not devout? Honest but not prayerful. Benevolent but not believing. People who aren't quote-unquote bad people. But God is not at all in any of their thoughts. How easy for us to think those people are okay when the Bible says they shall be turned into hell. Anyway, moving on in verse 18. What happens to the wicked and the forgetful is contrasted with the godly. The needy will not always be forgotten. The poor shall not perish forever. The idea of needy and poor here is... Not about just general needy and generally poor, but it's about the righteous who suffer under the oppression of the wicked. When the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. When the wicked prosper, the righteous become poor and needy. And so as the wicked prosper, the righteous become poor and needy, something happens, it says. They will not be forgotten by God and their expectation shall not perish forever. Where the hopes of the wicked will be crushed and the fears of the wicked will come true. The fears of the godly will be crushed. And all of their best hopes in God will come true. And then the psalm ends in a prayer. Arise, O God. Let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord. That the nations may know themselves to be but men. Seem to be two desires in this psalm. The first is for the will of man not to prevail over the will of God. Instead of letting their evil will prevail, David wants God to show his sovereignty by bringing judgment against those who reject God and those who rebel against God. And the second is for God to put, put these nations, these people in fear, in fear of 
God and in fear of God's judgment. The fear of God's judgment will remind them they are but mere mortals who will give an account to Almighty God. And and I would say, man, if there is a, a prayer our nation needs at this time, it is the prayer in verses 19 and 20. To pray for the will of man not to prevail. And for God to arise, to make Himself known, and to cause them to realize they are but men. And there is a holy God to which they have to answer. There is great comfort in knowing our God is in control. And there is a danger in this of letting God is in control be a cliché. And when it does that, it it loses its comfort. It loses its meaning. And I think in so many ways we have to fight against that. Even in our own lives. Because we can't say, well, God is sovereign and God is in control when things go the way we want them to go. And then, oh no, I'm fretful and forgetful and fearful when things don't go the way we want them to go. Our God is just as much in control when everything falls in line the way we think it ought to as He is when things seem to fall apart and make no sense at all. Worship. Worshiping God. It will be a reminder of God is the sovereign ruler. And He is in control even when we're not. And when our circumstances are out of our control, they're not out of of God's control. So many ways, I would say, for all of us, there is a need for us to worship. Worship together, to be sure. But to worship tomorrow. To worship Friday. To worship Saturday. Because the circumstances of life right now are crazy. And I don't know when they're going to get any better, when they're going to be any different. And if we let the circumstances of life dictate much, we will be fearful. We will be fretful. We will be anxious. But if we become a people who are daily, regular worshipers of God, then our focus will be on Him. His greatness, His sovereignty, His justice, His protection, and not upon our circumstances. And great peace, great peace will we have when we know our God in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Guide us to focus our lives upon You. Help us, Father, in this time. No matter what's going on, not to be afraid, but to look to you, to pray to you, to worship you. Father, draw us to times where we cry out to you in prayer. We study your word. We sing songs of praise. We share your greatness and your goodness. We think about what you have done for us in the past, what you will, what you have promised to do for us in the future. Help us, Father, as we see injustice abound, not to be afraid because we know there is a just God who rules over the world, who has made, has made His judgment seat prepared and one day will bring judgment into the world. Help us, Father, to be busy about Your business, devoted to You, comforted and strengthened in Your grace and in Your goodness. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.